instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, it's wonderful to be with you this morning. Musicians did a wonderful job. Thank you. If you don't know me, I, my name is Nathan. I am a former employee here, former youth pastor, former assistant pastor, who has somehow ventured very far up north, 1,784 miles from here, to the land of Simsbury, Connecticut. Uh, it is a town that is literally based off of the town of Eagleton and the show Parks and Rec, if you are familiar with that. So we are fictional Egotonians. Uh, but we are up there to do the work of church planting slash discipleship making slash surviving the winter. That's what God has called us to do up there. So in, in a few minutes, I'll talk a little bit more about that specifically because I just want to bring you up to speed and share with you all that God is doing. And um, he's doing a lot. And some of it is beautiful and wonderful. And some of it is messy and chaotic and I've just learned to expect nothing less when it comes to doing the Lord's work, as I'm sure many of you have experienced this well. But before we get there, I would like us to look at Matthew chapter 8 this morning. Matthew chapter 8 has become a near and dear passage to my own heart. And in fact, I was thinking about it a relatively short time ago. I think this is one of the first gospel passages, first Bible stories that I remember ever hearing. Do you guys have one of those? Maybe if you've been in the church for a while, if you haven't, maybe, maybe you have a more recent memory of, a, of just a story in the Bible that you just hear and it's like weird enough to where it just sticks in your brain forever. For me, that's, this is one of those. So Matthew chapter 8, starting verse 28, sorry. Let's read it together. Matthew writes this. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What do you have to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs were feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And Jesus said to them, Go. So they came out and went to the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled. And going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, for the second time, Jesus begged as they beg him, saying, please leave our region. Would you guys pray with me as we ask the Lord to help us this morning? Father, you are gracious and you're true. And every word that we have sang to you this morning is abundantly true and reliable. Father, would you do what you do best? Would you grab our hearts this morning? Would you encourage us where we need to be encouraged? Would you challenge us where we need to be challenged? But Father, at the end of the day, would we all walk out of here with a deeper appreciation of who you are and what you're doing in our world? And just the mere fact that you allow us to participate in that is abundantly joyful. So, Father, would you be our only teacher this morning? 
And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. I think regardless of your socioeconomic status or even your religious orientation, one of the things about humans that I just love so much is our ability to control situations. Now, I know that oftentimes has negative connotation, which obviously we'll talk about in a second, but just for a second, think of the positive aspects of that. You know, we have the ability to will things and to want things and to, and to desire things and to dream. And we all have visions for our life, the way we want it to go. We have this picture, this, this, this ideal good life that we want to inhabit. And our ability to control our situations in life, we think almost in a formulaic way sometimes, will then result in us achieving that good life, achieving that prosperous condition, whatever it may be. Last May, I think it was last May, I think a while back we got to piggyback on, I think some of you may know this, we got to piggyback on a, a trip to Disney with some friends. Disney World is fantastic. Here's why. It's the only, not just, it's not just acceptable in Disney World, it's like highly encouraged that grown men dress up like Obi-Wan Kenobi, build a $300 lightsaber, and then scour the park till they find Darth Vader or Kylo Ren or someone on the dark side so that you can duel with them. And it's wonderful. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's not just something you do, it's like something you're expected to do. And it's glorious. Why? Well, because when you're, in, when you're at the park at Disney, and if you've been there, you know what I mean, like there's just this air of freedom. You know, it's almost as if all of the problems that contribute to our ability to lose control of our lives have to wait at the gate while we're on the inside. You know, while we're in the park, we get to do what we want. And we're just, it's almost like you, you, you facilitate this carefree zone and you inhabit that zone while you're there. You know, problems at work don't really exist in the park. Familial problems kind of dissipate. Spousal frustrations for the most part, you know, kind of go away at the park. Even certain health conditions just seem to slip our mind when we're in the park. But the downside of Disney is that eventually you have to leave. And when you leave, you're confronted with the reality that we live in a world that presents itself with problems that threaten the one thing we want most in this world, control. Problems that Sometimes we've caused ourselves, and sometimes problems that have been caused to us. But regardless, this beautiful thing that we have, this ability to control our lives, really isn't all-encompassing. Because problems come, and they knock us out of whack, and they introduce chaos to our life. And sometimes it's unbearable. Most of the time it's unbearable. Whether it's acute or obtuse, we don't have the ability to control our life like we think we do. And it becomes fearful. It becomes something that we become afraid of because we think if we can't control, then we're not going to get where we, to, we're not going to be where we want to be. We're not going to experience that good life. So here's what I think this passage is encouraging us in this morning. I'm going to phrase it in the way of a question, and it's this. When our, or is, is there really hope when our life is out of control? Like, is there real hope? I don't mean just theoretical encouragements. I mean, is there a real, tangible hope for our lives when it feels like it's out of control? I don't know where you are today, but I have spent I don't know, a significant portion of my past few years feeling like, I don't know what I'm going to do. My life is out of control. I don't know where money's going to come from. I don't know where, how this relationship's going to end up. And 
It's scary. It's frustrating. And so I say that just to say this. What Matthew's going to tell us is real. And it, it has substance to it. It has teeth to it. And so if you find yourself this morning as, again, in an acute way or maybe in an obtuse way, if you find yourself in your life is just out of control, man, Matthew has some hope for us. Because there is hope. Would you pray with me one more time? Let's ask God to help us. Lord, help us. Help us find the hope that you are offering us. Lord, would you do your thing this morning? Encourage us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's start somewhere where everyone can agree, and it's this. that Some situations in life just seem void of all hope. There are some certain situations in life that just seem void of all hope. Look at verse 28. And when he came to the other side... To the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass by. Now, the two men in the passage that we're introduced to immediately are not necessarily uh, the people that you want to be best friends with. And in a real way, Matthew is presenting them as two people that are completely beyond hope. They are living in the outskirts of town because everyone is done trying to help them, deal with them. They're even done with trying to deal with their own lives. They've befallen on this situation where they're even a threat to themselves. Matthew tells us that they're, that are, excuse me, Luke and Matthew also record this incident. Have you gotten there yet in Matthew? I mean in Mark? You have. So this is old hat. Okay, good. Great planning there. <laughs> Nevertheless, so you already know. You know that these people were even in a harm, these two individuals were harms to themselves. They were going about doing things to themselves that were catastrophically injuring them, themselves and be, uh, becoming a threat to the people around them. So much so that as they dwelled in the outskirts of town, no one would dare d deal with them. They just left them out there. No one would travel in that direction even because these are two individuals that absolutely have no hope. Now, let's take a time out for a second because we live in 2024. And there are some things whether we want to admit it or not, like there are some things when we come across in the New Testament or in the Bible in general that we need to pause and just think about for a second, okay? For a modern person, talking about demons and you know, things of that nature is a real pushback or push off or what, what, what's the word? We live in 2024. Do we really need to believe in demons and, and that, that, that kind of stuff? Or does that kind of invalidate this whole, this whole passage? Now, some of you, Maybe thinking that, like, hey, technology is great. Medical, medical uh, explanations are wonderful. We don't really need to be talking about this anymore. And yet, that's another reason why we should disc discount the New Testament. Well, hang on a second, because I think there's some really, really good, reasonable things to think about why Matthew would talk about demons in general. And the first thing to consider is this. Like, Matthew is not writing a fantasy account. This is not C.S. Lewis, you know, writing about lions and wardrobes. This is not, you know, uh, th th there's no dancing trolls in here. They're singing like Justin Timberlake or, or mutated Ninja Turtles that are trying to fight crime. Like, that's not what Matthew is writing. Matthew is writing a historical narrative. He's writing a historical narrative based on the life and ministry of Jesus. And so we have to read it or approach it as his intent. He's not writing a fantasy. So that's the first thing. The second thing is this. Because here's the deal. Even if you are like okay with believing in the, the, the spiritual realm and demons and such, I guarantee you, you have people in your life that think that is super weird. And they think that's the reason why they should just push back Christianity even more. But also cons consider this. Not only just his intent, but consider this. 
Like, if Matthew was writing something that would be a, a politically charged account, where he's just trying to gain popularity for this new religion, you wouldn't include demons. You wouldn't have Jesus, the leader of the movement, interacting with demons at all. Why? Well, number one, you would have him attacking Rome, a common enemy. But number two, you don't use demons because half of the Jewish sect, Jewish sect don't believe in demons. So the only reason why Matthew would include this account with Jesus interacting with his demons is because it actually happened. Okay, time in. So these, de these demoniacs, these two individual people, are representing people that have lost control of their lives. They have no hope. And while you and I may not have experienced this demonic reality, the way in which it's presented here, maybe some of you have, and I would learn to love and hear your stories about those things. But while we may not have experienced it like this, we have experienced evil and, frustra evil and frustrating things and problems that have pre presented themselves to us that have caused us to lose grip over the control that we have over our life. Dan Doriani says it like this. He says that every extreme, excuse me, in, in, in several extremes, sin can enter our lives by the sin of other people or by our own doings that can frustrate our control by the order, and order that we have ushering in chaos. He says we can destroy ourselves through alcoholism and drug addiction. Sexual compulsion and chronic gambling can exercise a dreadful hold on us. We need help to break the grip of these powers. He says some sins can also control us completely. Racism can control us. So can pride. When every offense against our ego sends us towards the ditches of extreme anger or hurt, even milder compulsions can wound us. Some of us feel we have to accept every offer or attend every event until all of our schedules are jam-packed and our lives are completely out of control. Others stay up late night after night and thereby condemn themselves to a life of chronic weariness. Yes, the demoniacs represent lives that have been thrown to chaos without much hope because of specific demonic possession. But we also, again, by our own doings and by the doings of others, have experienced our lives being out of control. It's an experience, unfortunately, that we all know too well. Whether it's through our fault or the fault of others. But listen, here's the encouraging part. If we're willing to see it, Matthew gives us a tremendous amount of hope in the midst of that despair. Because no situation, no situation is hopeless when Jesus enters the picture. Look at verse 29 with me. As Jesus enters, things are about to get super great. Ready? Verse 29. And behold, they cry out. What have you to do with us? Why do you bother us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? And now a herd of many pigs was feeding in some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, please, 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 send us into the herd of pigs. It's always, it's always shocking to me how well-informed the demons' knowledge of Jesus is throughout the New Testament. Have you guys ever noticed that before? Just how much they know, how theologically astute they are. How well they could do on most theological exams that were given to them. Like they are fantastic when it comes to the knowledge of who Jesus is. I mean, let's just be honest for a second. Oftentimes the demons are way more educated than the people are about who Jesus is. It's just something that's always that, that has always seemingly surprised me. I mean, they know more about him than most people care to know about him. And they do something really interesting. They ask him two questions and make a request. The two questions, they say, what do you have to do with us? Which is interesting. And then he says, have you come to torment us before the time? Even more interesting. 
See, they've recognized that Jesus is the Son of God, and they know there's a day coming when he will absolutely obliterate their freedom to run free and to hurt people forever. There's a day coming when all of those things will be done. And they're saying, is today that day? Is today the day when we receive the most terrible of punishments? Is today the day when we are finally bound and forever taken away from the ability to hurt, to maim, to oppress, to cause people's lives to be completely out of control? And then they make the most bizarre request. They say, if you cast us out, will you please send us into the pigs? Now, when I was young, this was when my attention was just, I'm like, I've got to know what happens. Is he going to send them into the poor little piggies, right? Now, Mark tells us, as you, if you recall, that the pigs numbered around 2,000. So we're not dealing with just old McDonald had a farm here. Like, this is a, natu- this is a, a nice, well-to-do operation, which probably contributed pretty handsomely to the economy of the region in which this scene is taking place. So this is not just some little, 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 little amateur. I mean, this seems to be a nice-sized operation. And so here's the deal. Why did the demons ask to go into the pigs? And I think it's a fair question. While we can't know for sure, because the text doesn't tell us specifically, I think there's some things, there's some things that, we, we, that could be suggested that make a lot of sense. I mean, from what we know about demons is that they have an ever-loving desire to destroy no matter what. This is their mission in life, is to destroy. They know there's a day coming when they will be destroyed. And so until that day comes, they're going to get all they can. And all, they're going to do all they can to destroy and to steal and to kill and to, and, and to absolutely oppress wherever they can. But scholars also speculate another reason why they want to destroy these particular pigs in general. And it seems as if they're clever enough to, they're clever enough to know this. That if they kill this herd of pigs, it causes devastation to the economy of this particular region. And who gets blamed for it? If this economy collapses, Jesus gets blamed for it. So now Jesus, per usual, is in a very precarious situation. On the one hand, he has the ability to meet these two individuals where they are, whose lives have been completely thrown into chaos and disorder. He can really help them, but it's only the expense of causing harm to this economy of this entire region. And what is he to do? What is he going to do? What's he going to choose? People or pigs? Look at verse 32. And he says to them, Jesus is speaking, with the same power and might in which the world came into existence, with the same power and might that he split the Red Sea so his people could go across, with the same word and power that he ushers to sustain the entire universe as we know it, he tells the demons without hesitation, go. So they come out, they go into the pigs, they rush down the steep bank, and they're destroyed. And the question is, why does Jesus grant their request? Why does he do this? Well, one reason, obviously, is because the the time for the final judgment of demons has not yet come. Okay, good. That's a great theological answer. And it's correct. 
But second, and I think maybe a more true and more real answer is this. Jesus is teaching everyone, the inhabitants of the, of the realm, of the region. Sorry, Lord of the Rings. He's in teaching the inhabitants, his disciples, and also us a very, very, very important lesson. And that's this, that people, regardless of how out of order their life is, people, regardless of how much chaos has come into their life, people, regardless of how screwed up or messed up or messy they are, are always infinitely more important than pigs. They're always infinitely more important than economies. People. People are more important. I remember being just awestruck. You hear hearing this story over and over again, because my, my parents were wonderful, and we listened to a lot of. Uh, oh, what's the wit? wit? Wit's in. What's the? Thank you, thank you. Adventures of Odyssey. Like we listened to this over and over, and I just remember growing up just thinking, like, dude, Jesus is like a real X Men. He's like a real adventure. He has all this power. He's like a real Superman. He's so powerful. He just speaks and the demons go. And I think that's part of Matthew's point, is Jesus is just so powerful. But can I just be honest with you? Having lived more life, <laughs> I just see this story a lot different. Yes, his power stands out to me, for sure. Jesus is powerful. He casts the demons out with one word, okay? But you know what stands out to me the most about Jesus in this? Is his kindness. His gentleness, his laser-focused nature on leaving the 99 to chase the one. His ability and passion for these two individuals who everyone else has written off. These two individuals that have no other source of stability and hope. Like he chooses them over the robust economy of the region. And you know what? He does it every time because that's the God that he is. My friends, the truth is this, that no matter how chaotic your life may seem today or tomorrow, because let's be honest, it's never a matter of if your life becomes chaotic. It's always a matter of when. But you need to know this now. We need to have this truth in our toolbox that when your life becomes chaotic, no matter how chaotic it may seem, the same kindness that Jesus has available to these two individuals, he has for you and me as well. Because he is kind, and he's loving, and he's gracious. He's also powerful, but he also cares deeply. And that's why there's no situation that's hopeless when Jesus enters the scene. The power and the strength of Jesus is unparalleled. Yes, 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 and yes. His ability to receive these two individuals and to be there in their presence and, and just to showcase his kindness is as true. And it's also available for us as well. So listen, let's circle back. When our lives are out of control, is there any hope? Yes. A big fat hope that there's no life that's so out of control that Jesus can't rescue it. What's crazy to me is the aftermath of this story. And so Mark and Luke are going to add some interesting details, which you guys already, already looked at, but just let me go real quick through these because I think they're just so interesting. Mark and Luke, they're going to add some, some things. Instead of running about wildly, one, especially in Mark, the demon that he focuses on, Legion, uh, instead of running about wildly, what happens to him? He's calm. 
He's of the same mind. The demons actually have left his presence. They're no longer, they're no longer oppressing him. He's clothed in his right mind. And in Mark 5, he's sitting down as if taking the position of a disciple before Jesus. And what's crazy is when the townspeople see this, when they come to see this, this, they see the individuals who is changed, but they cannot get over what? Their loss of property. Their economy has been shattered. Their day-to-day operations, their commerce has been shifted. It's been destroyed, seemingly. It's going to take a while to, to come back. And they can't even see the two men who have been completely healed. All they see is change has happened. We're in an uncomfortable position now. And it's your fault. And what's nuts is for the second time, Jesus is going to be begged to leave. They're going to echo the demonic's words. Jesus, you need to get out of here. You're not welcome here anymore. They don't see anything that he was able to do. Now, what they should have done is they should have said, Jesus, how in the world were you able to bring restoration to these individuals? That's what they should have said. And that's the question we need to ask as well. Because listen, when Jesus sends the demons into the pigs, the death of the pigs doesn't defeat the evil over the oppressed men. That's not what, that's not what happens. The truth is that sending the demons into the herd was a temporary solution. The final cause for defeating all evil and problems that sets our lives out of control is not in the death of imperfect animals or inviting the demons to ravish the pigs, but rather but it's in the death of a perfect man, Jesus himself. The herdsmen indeed suffer a loss. They do. But Jesus is going to suffer a loss way more, way more brutal, way more impactful. Not long after this event, he's going to willingly put himself under the abuse of billions of more demons and Satan himself as he hangs on a cross. And we say, why in the world would he do that? And I'll tell you why. He does it for these two demoniacs. And he does it for you and for me, proving for all eternity that he cares deeply about bringing absolute restoration to our out-of-control lives. Jesus bears our sin on the cross And beyond that, Jesus dies and he rises again to liberate the grip of evil and sin over us forever. And when we trust in him, he exercises that power over sin on our behalf. The healing of the demoniacs, in a real sense, is just a token of the healing that he brings to all who suffer from evil. Directly or indirectly. And then as the passage closes, we just, again... We have a rather, well, sorry, I forgot my millennial pacifier, aka iPad. I got the old paperwork in here. Let's do this. One of the things, well, let's do this. Where do we go from here? I think the story, the story of the demoniacs teaches us that If a life seems far out of control, Jesus truly can bring order to it. He can bring restoration. In this episode in particular, the miracle is very direct. It's immediate. It's not always like that in our lives. But here's the truth that we've got to cling to. The same kindness, the same power that we see in Jesus, the same willingness that we see for him to bring order is still true for us today. Because he rose from the dead and he's alive and he makes himself present among us. And so if you're in a position this morning where you're just feeling like it's just too much, life is too much, 
One, I'm, I'm sorry. Two, I understand. And three, there is hope. And that hope is Jesus. And he may not bring absolute immediate restoration, but what he does do every time is immediately meet us where we need him most. Trust him. As difficult as that is sometimes, trust him. He is a good God. He cannot do less than his infinitely perfect best. And he loves you. This, one of the reasons why this passage has become so near and dear to me um, is because, really, of what we read about in Mark, in the account that you already looked at in Mark. And that's when the, when the demoniac, uh, if, you re- if you remember in Mark chapter 5, when the demoniac becomes clean, immediately he sits down at Jesus' feet and then he begs him to go with him. Remember, he wants to be one of the twelve, which is so great. And I read that about, I don't know, a year or two ago, and I thought, wow, this was my life for a long time. I wanted, like the demoniac, to serve Jesus and really, in a you know, nice, sweet way, dictate where I wanted to serve Jesus. <laughs> Have you ever been there? Like, sure, Lord, I'll, I'll do whatever you want me to do, as long as it's here, type, type situation. And in a real way, that's what the, demoni- the demoniac does. But what, what's so interesting is that Jesus tells him what? No. No, this is not where I need you. I actually need you. I need you over here in this specific place. And so I, as I have reflected on that, what, to, just to be completely honest, the first time, first, first time I read it, post, post starting a new church you know, in 2018 and then seeing that God kind of closed that door and then opened another door, I first became really angry. Like, why? Why, Lord, would you not want someone to serve where they feel like they could serve you best. Like, wh- how, where's the logic in that? Help me. Like, I'm very passionate about these people, the way the demoniac's very passionate about going with you here, but you, you say no. Why would you say no? How selfish of you. I'm just being honest. But what I've come to learn is that in this passage in Mark, what a kindness and gracious thing it is what Jesus is doing. You see, because the townspeople absolutely reject Jesus. They echo the the demon's words. Get out of here. We don't need you. Right? But yet, what do they have to do for the rest of their seemingly, the rest of their lives? They have to walk with, walk by, and interact these people who have been radically transformed by Jesus until they leave this world. So what Jesus is doing, whether the demoniac realizes it in the moment or not, is he's leaving the people a great gift. He's leaving them a missionary. Where every day they have to come, to come to face the reality that the person that they sent away, the person that they absolutely hate, the, the person they absolutely reject, has radically transformed these two individuals. And I've thought about that a lot because we moved very far away nine months ago. <laughs> we moved to Connecticut, Simsbury, Connecticut, right outside Hartford. And, uh, you know, I, it seems like some days it feels like a really big move. Other days it doesn't. Maybe that technology helps with that. I'm not exactly sure. But here's what I do know help with that. Because oftentimes we'll hear people say, oh, wow, you know, like, I can't believe you're, you know, you're, you're, you're so faithful. You're, 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 you're so, I don't know, very nice things. But and I'm like, I, I don't know. We just, we kind of, we kind of just, it was a good opportunity and it felt like God was calling us. So, so us, I guess we're just, Big risk takers, I don't know. Like, I didn't really, didn't really think about it much. But I did think about this. 
the trajectory of my life as a minister uh, has been in specific positions and spaces where people, specifically this congregation, has encouraged me to take big steps of faith and, and, and really blessed those efforts, you know, to where, you know, even small ways when I came here in 2000, I think 14, 13, 12, 12, you know, on, you know, it was just little small things you guys would give me to do and trust me with to where I was like, oh, okay, I, I can be faithful here. Oh, I can be faithful here. So that fast forward 10 years later, moved to Connecticut. Okay, fine. Let's, let's do it type deal. And so I've been very blessed. We've been very blessed by your continued encouragement, prayers, you know, for us and teaching us what living by faith really means. And so, so I just wanted to update you in a couple ways. Uh, really just, just a couple things because the reality is you have prepared us well and we are an extension of this congregation and we're doing the Lord's work in a different part of the world that in some ways is very similar in other ways it's very different altogether it's very cold up there <laughs> so here's, here's I wrote down just four, four things just real quickly just to kind of bring you up to speed and if you ever want any more information you know certainly you, we can get in contact the best way probably is our newsletter it goes out once a month which reminds me I need to do that uh, our newsletter is probably the best way. We also have a Facebook group where it's more, uh, it's been less real time, but those are just two of the easiest ways to kind of learn about what we're doing. But here, let me just go through a couple things. The first thing, we moved nine months ago, and um, I think Elisa would agree. Uh, the, it's, been, it's been very healing being there. Um, and When we, uh, I, I transferred into the, well, well, so it's been very healing being there. I think there's, and, and you guys know, you can relate, maybe, maybe you're not a pastor or a missionary, but all of us have had something, either vocationally or relationally, that we just poured our heart and soul into. You know, the 80-hour weeks, the, night, the sleepless nights, like, you, you all have something like that, that you have just poured your heart and soul into, and then maybe it broke. Or maybe it didn't turn out the way you wanted it to. Well, that was certainly, that's certainly my story. And so uh, we did a lot of healing here before we left. Lots of great you know, counseling with Sam and, and you know, conversations with Carter and, and, just, and just other individuals. But there's a certain degree of healing that has to take place being away from the situation. And I think that's kind of what we've entered into this past nine months. It's just, just really stepping back and thinking, wow. I didn't realize how much that affected me or how much this affected me or, or vice versa. And, and I think the outcome has been good. We're in a very loving church, a very, very a diamond in the rough in that particular area for sure. Uh, but it, it, that whole thing has just been very healing. And I think it's, it's helped, it's certainly helped us, our family become more gelled because we, we don't really, really have that many uh, family members. Um, and so, so it's been very healing, very, very healing. Uh, the second thing is that we have been in process of figuring out, okay, what is the best way to make disciples here? What's the best way to evangelize? What's the best way to make disciples? And the short version is this. We were up there about three weeks, and I realized um, this is going to take a long time. If the ultimate goal is to build a church, this is going to take a long time. I'll give you just one quick story. I met a guy at the gym. I'm trying to meet people all the time. Really great guy. I helped him move a couch the other day, and he introduced me as his, 
as one of his best friends. But when I first met him, it was the normal, what do you do, why are you here, I work, oh, oh what, do you, what do you do? I'm like, ah, oh, I'm, I'm a pastor. Um, and then he's like, oh, well, just stone cold serious. Oh, you should definitely have stayed in Houston. I'm like, ah, oh, okay, well, <laughs> nice. Very good. So, so it was after conversations like that I realized this, this, this is going to take a while. This is going to take quite a while. So we've decided to pursue a model that will allow us to be there as long as God would have us there. A much long, but would provide a much longer runway. Which is the bivocational model. Which simply means this. That our ministry funding, both personal and also ministerial expenses and stuff, are coming from two different sectors. They're coming from financial partners. Uh, and then also coming from Elise and I working in the marketplace, which has been phenomenal. Um, I can't tell you, well, I probably can't, most of you know, I've never been like a real Christian. You know, like, well, I, I hate to say it like that, but you, you know what I mean? Like working a real, like having a job that's not pastoral. That's a way better way to say it. Or not, not working for a church. And so the conversations that I'm able to have and, and just relationships I'm able to build uh, coaching CrossFit, sweeping floors, mopping the floor, you know, cleaning the toilets and stuff like that. It's just exponentially different. Not necessarily better or greater, but it's different than what I've experienced before. It's given me credibility in the community that I've, I've never had before, which has been a wonderful thing. So we're going to keep chasing this bivocational model. Um, yes, it, that, I think that is the model, the way to go. And with it has bled lots of ministry. It has produced doors to open that are, um, they've just been incredible. And so I could, I could tell you so many stories. I'm just going to tell you one because it's probably the biggest one so far. On Christmas Eve, one of my friends, I was working at a gym. I am working at a gym, and I needed to meet someone. So I was looking for someone with credibility, like someone who was well-connected. And so I met this guy, and he, uh, I didn't know how to introduce myself to him. And so I said, well, uh, I saw him, he was playing, he was trying to get the paper towels, right? Like, you know, the automated paper towel thing? Yeah. And so I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to ask him how to do that. Because I did try to do it, and I couldn't do it, and, and anyways. And so, so I go over to him, and I said, can you show me how to do that? And he said, yes, I can. So we became friends after that, uh, after my, my stupidity. And then <laughs> shortly after, in, on Christmas time, or so, December 24th, he was singing Christmas carols, or Christmas songs, and uh, half of his face stopped working. So his wife takes him to the hospital because they thought he was having a stroke. He wouldn't have a stroke, was the good news. The bad news was uh, they found massive brain tumors on his, on, on his brain, or tumors on his brain. Stage four, I forget the specific cancer he has. Um, but immediately they rushed him to Boston you know, for surgery, and he begins an experimental trial and such. So December 26, he tells me about it, and I say, uh, can I come see you? He says, well, I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not a Christian. I said, uh, okay. <laughs> I said, can I come see you? And he said, yeah. And so I went and very, in a polite way, very, very much not wanting to hear anything Christian. So I, I just sat with him. Just sat with him. And over the course of his treatment in the past several weeks, I've been visiting him and seeing him, and it's been amazing to see just the small little nuances of change in him. And what I mean by that is that God is beginning to grab him in ways in which he was not expecting. I don't know if I was expecting, if I can be honest with you. He said the last conversation I had with him, he said, I, the doctor's given me two years to live. 
And so I'm reevaluating, you know, life and spirituality and things like that. And he says, meeting you, having the conversations we've had, in lieu of some other things that have happened in his life, he said, I no longer can, I, I can't, I can't not believe that there's not some kind of divine agency that has my back. And I told him, I said, look, I believe in a God who would move my entire family 1,784 miles from our home, away from everything that we know, away from everything that, every, everyone that we love, to meet you in this moment of your need to remind you how much he loves you. And so I went away from there, and, you know, he smiled politely and, was, and went away from there. And I just thought, man, being in New England, the reality statistically is I'm going to bury a lot of people that are on their, on their deathbed probably still reject and be hostile. And I had a real gut check moment. Like, do I... Do I want to do this? Can I do this? Do I have the stamina? And very quickly, I was like, I don't. But you know what Christ does? And Christ in me does. And I want to. But that's just the reality of the ministry of where we are right now. And, and I mean, right now, I'm, <laughs> I want to call that a huge success. And so... We're still, I'm still seeing him. We're still, we're still talking, and, and I'm praying that the God of order would bring order to his life and that, and that that individual would praise Christ for it. And if not, we're going to be faithful. Um, and so I'm just very thankful for you guys. And we are doing our best to be faithful and make disciples and share the gospel. And my hope is that a church is planted from that. But you know what? If not, I'll take what we have now because it's very sweet. It's interesting when I tell people I'm in church planting, if they know what that is, um, the Christians in particular, I've never been welcomed. Uh, I've never felt a genuine sense of thankfulness for our mere presence before. I can't tell you how many times I've told someone, you know, oh, are, oh, are you the church planner? Are you, are you starting a new church? And you know, I can't tell you how many, you know, People have just grabbed my hands and said, we have been praying for as long as I can remember, and my parents have been praying, and their parents have been praying that people like you would come here. And I'm like, I don't, I don't even know what to do with that. And I just tell them, I'm, <laughs> I'm here. And so it's been a very humbling time, a very healing time, but a time with lots of ministry. And I'm just so thankful for you guys and your support and for raising me and sending me out and for the abundance of time that I've taken up. I'm so sorry. Let's pray. <laughs> Father, I'm so thankful for Cornerstone and the congregation here, the elders uh, who have been just so supportive. And Lord, we pray that you would go before us in New England and that we would represent you well as a family and also as an extension of this congregation. Father, you are doing great things, and sometimes it's up to us to open our eyes and see them. And so, Father, would you encourage us? Would we be people who, who look for your kindness and your power when our lives feel out of order and trust that you care? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.